0: ARE study guide podcast. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the ARE study guide podcast. In this episode, we are going to talk about staffing resources for your practice management exam, understanding how to select the right staff to work on a project is going to be vital. And in this podcast episode, I'm going to just give you a breakdown on the basics of this process. I highly recommend checking out The Architect's Handbook of Professional Practice, which is published by the AIA. It's massive. It's like 1,500 pages, but this book is vital not just for your test, but for your own practice as an architect. It's really ambitious and really wonderful what they sought out to do with this book. They basically wanted to create a complete guidebook to being an architect. Everything that you really should know, not like technical details, but all of the other stuff. It's not about developing construction documents or designing buildings, but the general philosophies and all of the organizational and administrative stuff I personally want to have my own practice one day, so I would consider this like the Bible for having your own practice. Even if you don't want to have your own practice, I think it's really important to understand what kinds of things the people you work for have to think about. And in doing so, you're not only more informed, but you'll also make better contributions to your team. So highly recommend this book. And for this exam, Try to find out everything you can from that book on how to select staffing assignments for a project. Another great book to read is Professional Practice, A Guide to Turning Designs into Buildings by Paul Siegel. That book is also so wonderful and way shorter, so there's no reason to not just throw it in there if you're reading the handbook anyways. And for Professional Practice, I bought the paper copy of that book And I love it. It's a really great size, nice and small, uh, fits on my bookshelf quite nicely. And I can see myself referencing this book for the rest of my career. Highly recommend both of those books. And to be honest, I don't know how you are going to pass your exams without knowing those books. All right, so let's dive into it. In Paul Siegel's book, he says that the internal organization of an architecture firm is typically going to be organized in one of three ways. Horizontally, vertically, or a matrix. A horizontal organization of a firm is when you have departments. The workflow is going to move like an assembly line. This is going to make everyone specialized and efficient for specific tasks but it's going to result in a disconnect of communications as the project moves from phase to phase. So, with a horizontal organization, a project is going to start with one department. Let's say they do the concept and schematic design, and maybe even design development, who knows. But it starts with them, and then let's say for the production drawings it goes to a different department. So how are the people working on the construction documents going to know all of the things that the initial design team thought about and how are they going to make sure that they incorporate all of that into their set? That's going to be kind of hard if they haven't been there from the beginning. They'll have whatever notes and guidance, but I bet a lot of details are going to get lost. But it doesn't make it bad. Um, like he says, it'll make everyone very specialized and efficient at specific tasks. So the overall project deliverables might be great because the people doing the design are really good at what they do. The people doing the construction documents are really good at what they do. Then there's a vertical organization, which is when you have project studios In a vertical organization, a project is developed by one team from start to finish. This requires each team member to be knowledgeable and experienced with every project phase. The third organizational strategy is a matrix, which is going to be a combination of horizontal and vertical structures. This is when a project is going to be managed by one team from the beginning through end, but specialized staff will join the team as required during each project phase. Staffing I think for the practice management exam, when they talk about the staffing roles, they are going to be more focused on the architectural professional staff. But let's just talk about the administrative roles. A firm will typically have a receptionist. A receptionist is going to manage the basic office functions and communicate regularly with the clients and consultants. An administrative assistant is going to assist with office and project tasks. A marketing coordinator is going to work on project proposals and public relations. The bookkeeper is going to process invoices, payroll, and bill the clients. Human resources is going to help with the hiring and firing processes, manage the employee benefits, and assist in navigating internal conflicts. A CDFA is a certification for individuals who have developed the administration skills related to the tasks of a design firm. Human Resources Depending on the size of the firm you work for, you may or may not have a human resources department, which is kind of a bummer because human resources is really important. The roles of a human resources department or professional is going to include employee recruitment, the hiring and firing, employee benefits and compensation, onboarding new employees, legal compliance, making sure that a firm is doing everything legally, professional development, assisting in managing the communication between the leadership and the employees facilitating performance reviews and developing and updating the employee handbook. These are crucial things to the success of a firm. And if a principal has to be responsible for them, it can create some sticky things. It's nice to have that human resources person there to serve sort of as, um, for lack of a better word, a middleman. So if an employee has an issue, they can talk to human resources and the human resources person can address the leadership about the issue without creating any unnecessary tension or conflict. So if a firm is in a financial position to afford human resources, it's highly recommended that they do so. These days you can even outsource human resources to a third party If possible, human resources is a great add-on to a firm. Let's talk about some terms sort of related to human resources, but related to the hiring process. So at-will employment is the concept that either the employee or the employer is able to terminate the employee's employment at any time for any reason. So I have a friend that lives in France and when she gets a job, she signs a contract for like, let's say a six month period or a three month period. And I don't know how that contract can get broken, but I think in general it doesn't. You're signing up saying you are going to complete the full duration of the contract working for that company at will. Employment is not like that. If you get a job, and you're terrible, or you don't like it, um, you get a job in, you work there for two weeks and you don't like it, you can quit. And that's legal. Again, that's called at-will employment. A non-compete agreement is an agreement signed by an employee saying that they will not start a competing business, work for a competing company, or work for clients of that firm for a set time period after their employment has been terminated, because it happens right. Like you, you make friends at a firm, and you guys are like, "Oh, we could do this better. Let's start our own firm." So, a non-compete agreement uh, establishes a time period for employees that they must uh, they can't just quit right away and steal clients and steal other employees. A non-compete agreement says you have to wait a set amount of time before you engage in any of those activities. A probation period is a set time period at the beginning of employment where the employer is allowed to fire an employee without cause. So this can be pretty handy. Let's say you hire someone who doesn't actually do anything wrong and there's no measurable way to show how they're not performing. It's it's different if someone's not doing work, you can measure that, but like they're doing work, but it's just not up to par, it's not really measurable and you might have a hard time legally firing them later. So a probation period is a great way to let someone go without penalty and while you still have the legal opportunity to do so. So a probation period I think is typically like three months after you start a job where the employer is allowed to let you go for any reason. They don't need to explain themselves. So if you're on a probation period, make sure you do a stellar job because your employer is legally allowed to fire you without cause. So I guess suck up, be good and keep your job if you want it. If you don't want it, maybe you should just go move on, find something better. You do you, boo. And then there is an independent contractor. This one is kind of funny because I worked at a firm once where someone said they were an independent contractor, and I don't think they understood what the legal implications of that were. So the only thing that they were doing is they were paying their own taxes. Typically, when you work for someone, each paycheck, you'll see that they've taken out your taxes for you to make sure that the IRS gets paid. So each pay period, they take out a portion of the taxes that you told them to on your behalf. When you're an independent contractor, that doesn't happen. You get the full pay amount and then you are responsible for paying your own taxes. And when I worked with someone who was an independent contractor, They believed that was the extent of what an independent contractor did. No. An independent contractor is supposed to supply their own equipment. They receive no employee benefits other than payment. So when you work for someone, they might provide you with health insurance. Vacation time an independent contractor is just supposed to get paid, they don't get any of the benefits. And an independent contractor has no contractual obligations. They work on their own terms, and they're also allowed to work for other firms at the same time. Let's talk about the typical roles in an architecture firm. So the AIA has published job descriptions for the different roles, and That is a really neat document if you can find it. I found it, I think, from like the AIA Los Angeles had it up on their website. Very cool and probably going to be very helpful for this test. So maybe search on the internet for AIA job descriptions or AIA architectural job descriptions and see if you can find anything. Uh, I'll give you a few of them right now. The head honcho at a firm is going to be the CEO or president of the firm. The president should be a licensed architect who directs the long-term vision of the firm. A managing principal is a licensed design professional who establishes the goals and oversees the operations. The chief operating officer is responsible for the daily operations. Director of design develops design standards for the firm, and supervises the design. A director of design may be the director of a specific studio within the firm, or the director of design for the firm at large. Senior project designer, typically will have 10 or more years of experience and is responsible for the design and project coordination. A project designer is typically going to have between five and 10 years of experience and they will be responsible for conceptual design, presentations, drawings, and coordination. Once you get licensed, you can be considered an Architect 1, Architect 2, or Architect 3. So Architect 3 is the top with typically 10 or more years of experience, and they will be responsible for the design, coordination, and leadership of a large team for mid to large projects. If you're not licensed, instead of being called an architect three, you'll be called design staff three. An architect two will typically have eight or more years of experience, and they will be responsible for the drawings, specifications, and leadership of a small team. If they are unlicensed, that role is going to be called design staff two. An architect one is a licensed architect with five or more years of experience, and they are. Going to be responsible for independent problem solving. And when they are on larger projects, they will work with more senior staff to help bridge the gap of knowledge. If they are unlicensed, they will be called Design Staff One. An intern three is going to have three to six years of experience. An intern two will have two to three years of experience. An intern one is going to have less than two years of experience. A senior project manager will typically have 10 or more years of experience, and they are responsible for managing and coordinating the project, and they will oversee other project managers. A project manager typically has 8 or more years of experience, and is responsible for managing and coordinating small to medium projects. How do you select the right staff for a project? You can only determine the staffing needs for a project after the project's scope has been defined and the required deliverables have been outlined. The project manager is going to be responsible for coordinating both the internal team and the external team, including the architect's consultants. When selecting which members from your team should work on a project, you have to consider the size of the project and the number of staff members required to develop the deliverables you need to consider the skills and expertise that the project requires. If it's a really complex project, you need to make sure you have people with the appropriate level of knowledge to actually complete that project. If anyone has previous experience working with a particular client, if they already have developed a relationship, that's a desirable thing. I guess if they worked well together, if you didn't work well with a client, you probably shouldn't go work on another project for that same client billion rates of staff members, that's going to be huge. So a project has a budget for the firm. You know how much the client is paying you. So you know how much you can spend on labor for a project. So you have to look at the billing rates for a staff. You can't just stock up a project with a bunch of all-stars. If the budget's low, you're going to have to balance it with maybe like one star employee. And then a few junior staff to help offset that cost. So you have to consider the billing rates and the actual money that the client's paying you to know who you can afford to put on a project. Understanding how to do that is going to be a huge part of this test. You also need to consider the current workload. You might have an employee that would be great for the project, but if they're like full-time on another project and they need to be on that project, you can't have someone working 80 hours a week. So you have to consider how much of that staff member's time is available. And then you could say they have 10 hours available. And you, Then you could decide, okay, this, that person will work on this project for 10 hours a week. Again, a huge part of this test. So for selecting the right employees to put on a project... The kinds of questions that you could actually get tested on, the billing rates, understanding uh, which combination of employees can you afford for a project based on their billing rates and their current workload. How many hours a week can they contribute? How many hours a week do you need to develop the project? All right, so that is a basic overview of staffing requirements for a project. Again, make sure you look at the Architects' Handbook of Professional Practice. I don't know off the top of my head which sections talk about staffing requirements, but I bet you could search the word staffing if you had the PDF and find the relevant sections for you, or check out the index or table of contents. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to me at ARE study guide Until next time, bye.